Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. After taking the unprecedented move of unseating Kevin McCarthy as the Speaker of the House, GOP lawmakers adjourned as the race for a successor began. This as opposition to more aid in Ukraine uh, appears to be becoming a litmus test among some Republicans. Although facing numerous criminal prosecutions, former President Trump has offered to become the temporary Speaker of the House as he faces new accusations of having disclosed top secret information about the nation's nuclear submarine force. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is making the case that supplying Ukraine with more weapons allows it to fight more effectively against Russia on Europe and the world's behalf. The row between Canada and India is growing worse uh, as the nation's closest allies remain muted in criticizing the Modi government for targeted assassinations of opponents. President Biden will be meeting with Xi Jinping in San Francisco when Pacific leaders meet next month. This as Beijing continues to provoke tensions with Taiwan as the island nation prepares to celebrate its national day and the Philippines. This also as Tokyo, uh, in response to all of this, accelerates its $1.4 billion purchase of Tomahawk cruise missiles from the United States. Joining us today to review the week in Washington and around the world are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson, the President of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, now with the Center for a New American Security and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody interested in the transatlantic relationship, and Dr. Kathleen McGinnis, of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, who leads the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative uh, at that great uh, think tank. Dov Zakheim is unable to join us this week. We hope that he returns uh, soon. And Kathleen, a very special welcome uh, back uh, to joining uh, the team. Uh, Michael, uh, start us off. You, this is now the third time you have the hat trick for the week uh, in, in joining us four times, if you include last Friday, uh, to uh, discuss uh, the astonishing happenings up on Capitol Hill. On Monday, uh, you joined us because there was a surprise 45-day deal, uh, continuing resolution that kept the government from uh, closing. That was a bipartisan uh, act of courage, as, as we discussed. And then uh, on Wednesday, you gave us a meticulous explanation of what happened that cost uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, his job and the start of the race uh, to replace him. The Speaker pro tempore, uh, Patrick McHenry, sent everybody home for the week to cool down tempers. Uh, and uh, next week is going to be devoted to voting uh, with two frontrunners emerging, House Number 2, Steve Scalise, uh, the Republican from Louisiana, and Jim Jordan, uh, the Ohio uh, Republican. Uh, Trump has offered uh, to become uh, Speaker temporarily. Uh, uh, but House uh, rules apparently forbid anybody under indictment from holding the job. But he has also endorsed uh, Jim Jordan, and we'll get to the race in a minute. You know, give us your quick walkthrough of where we stand now, right? Bring bring folks up to speed briefly uh, if they haven't heard the Monday uh, and the Wednesday uh, programs. But now where we stand and where we're going, there's a legislative calendar that's winding down. You know, it's one week is going to be for the election. Uh, you know, then we're going to try to turn to avoiding another government shutdown in November. You know, there are some people who are now already talking about a year long CR. Walk us through where we stand right now. Uh, sure. I'll give a quick you know, 60 second recap for those who missed the Monday and, and the Wednesday show. So uh, after we taped last week, uh, the agriculture bill failed on the floor, followed by the continuing resolution that the Republicans put up that would cut spending and include their border uh, restrictions. 21 Republicans voted against. 
Uh, Republicans met to figure out the way forward. They walked out of the meeting not knowing the way forward. They met again Saturday morning. Uh, we're told there's no path forward on, on a CR. Uh, but shortly thereafter, McCarthy announced a clean 45-day CR with disaster relief, no Ukraine aid. Uh, he put it on suspension so it wouldn't have to go through the Rules Committee. Uh, no one was talking to the Democrats, so there really was no deal with Democrats. Democrats only had uh, less than 90 minutes to read over 70 pages. Uh, they, they voiced some concerns with the CR. Uh, some changes were made, and it passed uh, overwhelmingly 335 to 91. Uh, then uh, we avoided a government shutdown, which we thought was inevitable. On Monday night, um, when Congress reconvened, Matt Gates offered a motion to vacate the chair, uh, which we've, has been looming over McCarthy's head for quite some time. Uh, McCarthy surprised the conference in the meeting the next day, uh, since he had two days with which to bring it up, that he would bring it up right away. Um, Democrats did not bail him out, and uh, the motion to table failed, and the, the motion to vacate the speaker uh, passed with eight Republicans uh, voting in favor. Uh, so they descended into chaos because those two weeks were supposed to be used to pass appropriations bills. Uh, they were supposed to work on two appropriations bills uh, this week and two next week, and now that will not be taking place. Uh, so right away, a bunch of names emerged for speaker, uh, as, as you mentioned. Um, uh, you know, the, the two front runners right now are Steve Scalise and, uh, and Jim Jordan. Uh, however, uh, Kevin Hearn, who chairs the Republican Study Committee, uh, his name is also being tossed out there as well. And, of course, Donald Trump's name is in and out and is even uh, talked about coming to visit with the um, House Republicans next week. So the current timeline is um, a new thing emerged um, to the timeline last night. Uh, apparently now the House Republicans will come back on Monday uh, and uh, Brett Baer from Fox News is going to conduct a debate uh, between Scalise and and Jim Jordan. Not clear whether Kevin Hearn will participate in that. Already, some of the moderate Republicans are very upset about this and feel this is a clown show. Um, <clears throat> uh, Congressman uh, Jimenez is on the Armed Services Committee. Uh, just tweeted out saying, whoever thought this was a good idea, I may not support either one of these candidates You know, right now. Uh, Tuesday, there's supposed to be a candidate forum. Uh, between the candidates, and then Wednesday would be the vote for a speaker. Uh, unclear when the floor vote would, would take place. However, uh, the Democrats uh, are being prepa are preparing for that, so the Democratic whip has sent out an email to everybody saying that each member of our caucus must be physically present on the floor uh, next week because uh, every vote is, is going to matter. Uh, but there's really no signs that the civil war within the GOP is, is clearing up. I mean, right now you have a large group of the moderates threatening to tank any speaker if the rules aren't changed to drop uh, the chance of a single member offering a motion to vacate, uh, which is what toppled McCarthy. At the same time, conservatives saying that if you abandon that rule, that's a deal breaker for them. And they're also saying that they would sink any potential speaker that uh, supports uh, Ukraine aid. Um, and uh, you know, if, if Scalise ends up being the speaker, that would open up a race for majority leader and possibly for whip as well. So barbs are already being thrown between Emmer and Stefanik uh, and a bunch of other people who are positioning themselves for that. At the same time, it appears that Kevin McCarthy and his team are working against Steve Scalise uh, and in favor of Jim Jordan uh, for speaker, which also is causing more uh, tension within, within the ranks. And you know, people are expressing I think uh, unfairly concerns about Steve Scalise's health as an issue not to uh, elect him as speaker. And you know, I mentioned in one of the previous- He has um, a multiple myeloma, he has blood cancer, uh, which is a serious condition, but it is uh, something that he is expected to uh, survive, uh, right? I mean, so this isn't, this isn't as catastrophically uh, 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 debilitating a diagnosis as some people are making it out to be, I think is your point. 
Exactly true, right? His doctors told him, if you're going to have cancer, this is the kind of cancer to have. And and also, you know, don't forget that Steve Scalise was shot and almost killed, right? And was also told that he wasn't, he may not even walk again. Uh, and not only was he right. able to walk again, but he's able to play baseball again uh, on the congressional right. base in the congressional baseball game. So, you know, Steve Scalise is one of the toughest guys I know. I mean, I remember sitting in the hospital with him after he was shot, uh, and he was determined to come back. And actually, you know, I'm in as you know, in Sonoma, California right now. And that's what he wanted to talk about too. He couldn't wait to get to Sonoma and go wine tasting. I mean, this guy is driven and he knows what he wants. And also to be a good speaker, you have to have a sense of your conference. And Scalise has that sense. He served as Republican study committee chair. He served as whip. He served as majority leader. He's an, uh, he's also a very prolific fundraiser, which is something that people are worried about um, by losing McCarthy. Jim Jordan has none of that. He's not a prolific fundraiser. He does not have a sense of his conference. And I also think you know you got people need to be concerned too about the, the the scandal that he leaves behind at Ohio State, which will come back to bite him again. Uh, that he was accused of covering up the sexual abuse of of, of student athletes there. Um, you know, so he was involved in the in the wrestling program, and the allegation was that he knew uh, what was going on and, and failed to do anything to stop it. Correct, okay. and which he and, den- which he which he steadfastly denies. Right, that's that true. Uh, and also, I think, you know, I, I've, t- I've been talking to a lot of folks, there's a lot of concern about what a Jordan speakership would look like. You know, if you put somebody like Jim Jordan in the speaker's chair who's, who's aligned with the House Freedom Caucus, who doesn't want to compromise, it means there's a strong likelihood that we do not have any appropriations bills negotiated between the House and the Senate. Uh, we do not have an NDAA. We do not have Ukraine aid. And we likely have a long shutdown uh, on November 17th. Uh, serious implications uh, uh, for national security. So, you know, to, to make things even more complicated, you know, uh, we mentioned uh, Trump before. So Trump uh, initially was uh, throwing his hat in the ring as a consensus candidate to take the job temporarily, but surprised everybody last night by endorsing uh, Jim Jordan. Um, so that but at the same time, the House, the, the, you mentioned before the, the, that Trump would be precluded by the rules from being the speaker because the, the rules prohibit somebody who's under indictment uh, that could be uh, sentenced for two or three years in prison would be ineligible. They feel they could change, they would change that rule for him. But either, either way, on a secret ballot, Trump could not get to 218. Uh, now the issue is between Scalise and Jordan, can they get to 218? Because they have agreed also apparently uh, to a rule change there as well, that there will be a secret ballot between the two. So Scalise or Jordan would come out ahead I believe it would be still be Scalise, even with Trump's endorsement. Um, but let's say even if it's Jim Jordan, you have to then get to 218 on a separate vote in the room before they go to the floor because they want to avoid the disaster that they had with Kevin McCarthy. And uh, I think there's a feeling that right now neither one of them could get to 218 uh, in the room. And does that leave an opening than for a consensus candidate to emerge. Because right now, I think everybody feels it's very unlikely that we will have a speaker next week. And this will drag on possibly through the weekend and into the following week. And will they then coalesce around Scalise? Because I think he'd had the most votes. Or does this leave an opening for somebody like uh, a Patrick Henry or a Mike Johnson or a Tom Cole to emerge as a uh, consensus speaker? Uh, that still you know, remains to be seen. Um, well, I mean, the unfortunate thing with the whole caucus, even with folks who might have been perceived as more moderate, whether it was a McHenry or a Cole, are have had to earn kind of a hard right edge to themselves in order to maintain support within their own caucus, right? So, right, I mean, McHenry's first act at the request of the outgoing speaker 
was to throw Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer out of their offices because Democrats didn't didn't vote for them. I want to I want to ask you a little bit about the mechanics of this. Right. There is a perception that all of this chaos hurts Republicans. Right. That, you know, whether it's called a clown show or anything else. And yet the overwhelming majority of Republicans blame Democrats for what happened to Kevin McCarthy. They do not blame Republicans. And it doesn't matter how serious the transgressions or Donald Trump's transgressions or legal legal troubles are. You know, the president's dog biting people is a bigger story for a lot of people. Right. So none of this appears to be hurting Republicans. Well, why not? I'm not convinced of that. Right now, look, doesn't uh, the polling suggest that it's completely irrelevant if um, more people are worried about you know, whether commander bit eight or nine people, <laughs> an old look, German shepherd bit I, I, used I, to fight people. I mean, <laughs> you know, like anyway, look, uh, we have to get, get I'm not this condoning play. dogs biting people, by the way, right. including secret servicemen. So I just want to make that abundantly clear. Again, as I said in the past, the only poll that matters is in November of 2024, right? And you've got to remember where these Republicans are getting their information from. They're getting it from Fox, they're getting it from Newsmax, they're getting it from OAN, so they're not getting um, the full story here. And you're right. I mean, the Republicans are trying to play Democrats for this, and I'm flabbergasted by it. I mean, I see the emails that are coming out, uh, you know, blaming the 208 House Democrats that voted to cause chaos in the House of Representatives. I mean, it's just... Uh, mind-bending and, and even uh in kevin mccarthy's um press conference trying to blame the democrats look you know this is all this chaos is all that the house republicans are making the democrats worked with the republicans to avert uh default they made a debt ceiling deal that the republicans have reneged on and and frankly i and i think that the democrats would have worked with mccarthy to stay in the speaker's chair if the republicans had asked them to and it would have been reasonable for the democrats to ask for some reasonable concessions like abiding by the debt ceiling deal that's been passed and signed into law right. um, and uh funding ukraine which still the majority of the house and senate does not support uh and you know also possibly taking this impeachment inquiry off the table which is not going very well for the republicans so far so i mean it doesn't seem from what i understand no concessions were offered to the democrats so why would the democrats uh, bail them out. I mean, this is all a problem the Republicans making, and it's one that they that they need to solve. So, and I think the the, the more the circus continues on on the speaker's race, the more it will hurt Republicans. And the key is, does it hurt them among independent voters? Because that's the key in all these close elections. But, it's going to be the key in these close congressional elections. It's going to be the key in the presidential election. But it's it does not appear, unfortunately, that it's hurting them with independence that much. And then you have the president of the United States saying that I want to continue Trump's border wall, which then, right, is an unforced error that drives the ball, right, drives the entire discussion to, aha, Trump was right. There I am. I'm right again. We should have been building this wall. Uh, there are a vari- There's a vast assortment of reasons that we should be doing immigration reform. But just very quickly, do the Democrats understand that their margin of political error is zero at this point? Yeah, look, I think they do. And look, I look, remember, there was a border wall before Trump. OK, <laughs> you know, so uh, it's so yeah, it's, I mean, this I, I, wasn't yes. anything new. All right. Uh, so and I think that Biden may be handling it a little inartfully. But I think what he's trying to do here is say show a recognition that we do have a crisis at the border uh, and he's throwing the Republicans a bone here. Like, like the only way that they see right now Ukraine getting passed is if we tie it to uh, some border security legislation. So I think. Biden, by doing what he's doing, is showing that he's open to working. That he's trying to get to good, right? And I and I think the Republicans have to figure out 
once they figure out their way forward, how they're going to get to good. We can't, we can't be no all the time when you're in charge. It's very easy no. for Republicans to say no on everything when they were in the minority. Now they're in charge. So, like I said, saying no to everything means no Ukraine aid, no NDAA, no appropriations, and a long-term shutdown. That's, to me, not a prescription for electoral success for the Republicans in November. As the saying, uh, Michael, goes your mouth to God's ears. Uh, a quick word from all of our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air uh, and naval uh, coverage. Uh, we're we're going to move on from this uh, political dynamic. And very quickly, because I think elsewhere it will get lost, uh, we have two um, highly experienced former naval officers who served as intelligence officers, Jim and Patrick. Um, among the most closely guarded secrets the nation has involves the words nuclear and submarine. Uh, the former president is said to have discussed, uh, you know, the number of warheads on our, uh, that our boats carry, as well as how quiet they are and how close they can get to adversary submarines. He made this discussion with an Australian businessman at Mar-a-Lago, and this Australian businessman went and told other people, and one person tells two people, you know, you know the routine. Um, this is extraordinarily secret information, if true. And yet, Trump is the one calling for the execution of Mark Milley for for treason. Just very quickly, what does this mean? What is the signal this sends? Especially, you know, now Australians are brought into it. Former ambassador to the United States, Joe Hockey, very respected uh, diplomat, you know, said, look, it was not really anything that we didn't already know in terms of what information uh, was uh, shared. He was quoted in a New York Times story. And still, there are other people who are looking at this and sort of scratching, scratching their heads, whichever one of you really want to quickly tackle this issue and whether or not it changes any any vector. I mean, to me, the astonishing thing about this is the former president's rhetoric has gotten more incendiary and it's so much that folks don't even respond to it anymore, which is very problematic because there are people who are acting on this, right? In Wisconsin, we had somebody show up at the governor's office. You know, he was arrested once, posted bail, and then went back with a rifle, right? The first time was a gun. The second time was a rifle. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in and say the only trajectory I hope that this uh, impacts is the electoral trajectory and uh, concerning Trump, because we shouldn't really be surprised. He had a, a, a boatload of documents in Mar-a-Lago, some of them probably just as sensitive as what he spoke about. Uh, and we know uh, we know where that is and where that's going. And so I, you shouldn't be surprised uh, that that he was saying this is just add this to the list. But we shouldn't just say, well, that's OK. It's just Donald Trump. This is a big problem. And as he is looked at for a president, this kind of behavior has got to be taken into account. Um, you're right about the the uh, the our, you know, the national security implications of our submarine technology and the technical aspects of it uh, and that type of thing. I I don't know exactly what he said, how specific he was. Uh, you know, as was said, this is generally known that we have quiet submarines and that we have. Uh, multiple warheads on on missiles, but if he went into the numbers and the specifics, uh, then he was just showing how naive he is and how unfit he is to be president. And I certainly hope that this uh, will penetrate some of the skulls out there of those who think he would be a great president to have again. Patrick, I, I would just echo what Jim said. I, you know, this is the most sensitive information we have in our military, and uh, anybody who's been around the military knows that. I am a voracious reader of open source intelligence. And these issues, if they were 
truly reported, as, as he said, the exact number of missiles we have on most boats, how close we come to Russian submarines, those things are not in the public domain and they shouldn't be in the public domain. And if you start blurting this out, even to allies who are businessmen who talk to other people, uh, it won't be a secret for long. Um, I just I just want to point out one thing. Uh, as some of you and as people know, I'm pretty close to the submarine force. So there are friends of mine uh, who have served over the decades from the earliest days of the Cold War, and they still don't tell you the missions they were on or the proximities they came to or anything, because any of that information, even with among those who are trusted, is something that is seen as dangerous and potentially compromises tactics procedures that we may still be employing. Uh, and so, uh, you know, to underscore the importance of this, Kathleen, I know you want to add uh, something to this. And then I want to go to the Ukraine portion of the discussion and some of the messages this sends. But go ahead, take a bite. You know, I just feel like, you know, our friends in the intel community, we all need to buy them a beer. Um, thinking about this, like <laughs> between WikiLeaks, Snowden, these strategic leaks, of, you know, through uh, Trump at Mar-a-Lago, I mean, how do you run an intelligence enterprise that can't keep secrets like this at, at sort of strategic, operational and tactical levels? Um, it seems to me like we've got an enormous problem and our, our poor friends in the intel community who've got to clean up this mess. I have no idea how they're going to do that. And, and of course, this has strategic impact because in the time that they're doing to, to reconfigure um you know, sources, methods, um, architectures, all the things, um, that's all time and energy and bandwidth that's not being spent on the big challenges like countering Russia and China. Right. Uh, couldn't couldn't agree with you more. Um, you were just in Ukraine, Poland, uh, Moldova, uh, and I want to get everybody's kind of take on this because of the dread that's building uh, around the world uh, in, in terms of, you know, whether Donald Trump comes back as uh, president, whether Republicans who are going to do the former president's bidding do a lot of damage, for example, with Ukraine uh, aid and support for uh, Ukraine that is literally fighting uh, for its life against an adversary who's playing a long game, right? I mean, the saying is the Russians may lose 10 battles, but they eventually win uh, the 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 war. Kathleen, what are some of the messages this is sending the world? And, uh, you know, what did you pick up, uh, you know, in your in your trip to the region about how the United States has perceived their role in stepping up for their own security? You know, I mean, there are Europeans who, um, you know, have been telling me, look, I mean, if, if you guys don't support us, and we heard uh, that uh, from European leaders in Granada, um, you know, if the United States pulls the plug, there's nothing Europe can do to fill the void left by the United States pulling the plug. Give us give us your sense on the signaling, the messaging, uh, and, and you know, how our allies and partners are responding to this, you know, as Michael used the word, clown show. Sure. Um, so I think the the overall message that we got was that it's not just a question about Trump and whether or not he'll be elected, although that is on everybody's mind. Um, it's an overall question of U.S. commitment to the region and whether or not the U.S. is really serious about seeing Ukraine win this war. Um, you know, the, on the ground concerns about, you know, whether or not the U.S. is going to be um, would release or provide attackums. Um, close air support, all the kinds of things that will keep the Ukrainians um, in the fight and, and to reclaim their territory back. And then again, in other capitals, does does the United States truly have the long term attention span and, and intestinal fortitude to keep this thing going and, and to see the Ukrainians uh, win this fight? 
So, so yeah, it's not just about Trump. It's it's an overall question about where America is on these things and where America, um, how how America now views its role in the world and whether it's going to stand by its commitments. Um, I I was there as a part of a CSIS led congressional staff delegation, which apparently was the first staff delegation since the full sta- full scale invasion of Russia into Ukraine in 2021. Yeah. Um, there's some really interesting um, bureaucratic apparently reasons for that under chief of mission authority. Um, the, the, the staffing cap at the embassy is 170 people. And so anytime a delegation tries to stay the night in Ukraine. Um, they actually have to kick an action officer out into Poland for a week. And so they're trying to avoid losing staff on a regular basis. And it's, so it's very hard for the embassy right now to accom- um, accommodate. That is one of the most visit. absurd things I've ever heard in my life. So we were there. Again, we were the, one of the first delegations to spend the night in Ukraine. Um, we went to Lviv and then Kiev and then drove out to um, to Moldova and to Shishno. That's where we rounded out the trip. Um, and I was we were there with, uh, you know, under the hypothesis that one of the reasons that Congress is having its having a hard time thinking about and passing a supplemental appropriation of twenty four billion dollars is because. We don't actually have people on the ground actually visiting and, and talking with Ukrainians and seeing what's actually happening because the the U.S. embassy and the U.S. government is treating Kiev and and Ukraine overall as as a war zone and they don't want to bring people in. So we're so our people um, are you know the Congress isn't actually getting out to see what's happening and why the stakes are so critically important for U.S. interests. Um, so, so we brought staffers there and, you know, we walked around Bucha. We saw the mass graves. We saw the memorials. We saw how Ukrainians are fighting this war so we don't have to. We saw how they don't want U.S. boots on the ground, which is an extraordinarily much more costly proposition. They don't want us. They just want the ammunition and they want to fight and they want every inch of pre-2014 territory back. Another thing that I was I was convinced about um, over the course of the trip, you know, back in Washington, I hadn't been there, you know, and, and so I was thinking that, you know, Russia has had uh, Crimea since 2014. Maybe that's a lost cause. Maybe we trade Crimea for the lands in the east and that's how this this war ends. And I walked away understanding how fundamentally wrong I was about that that Crimea is the strategic decisive territory. If Russia retains Crimea, this war does not end. Um, right. it, there might be a strategic pause for Russia, but they will come back and they will annihilate. And I think that is a fair used to, word to use, annihilate the Ukrainian people. It, it will be a genocide. It is already an attempted genocide. And that is what we are trying to prevent. I agree with you. We've discussed this in uh, the context of uh, the whole Nagorno-Karabakh matter, uh, mm-hmm. where you know, like once Putin is jilted, his his thing is he he will uh, you know he will turn on the state and try to destroy it as a functional entity, uh, which is you know very effectively what he's uh, trying to do: depopulate it, abduct two million children, uh, yeah. and and take him uh, to to Russia. 
uh, right. as. And, and the, 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 the theory of victory um, on the Ukrainian side, and I, I've, I've come to agree with this, is that the only way for, for Ukraine to win this is to have Putin lose his, you know, his um, conquest in Ukraine and get, get back to the 2014 territories. If anything other than that is going to be a strategic pause or it's not going to suppress his appetite for other territories like Moldova. Interestingly enough, right. Moldova, which has always seen itself as aligned with Russia and with Moscow, has saw what happened in Bucha, saw Moscow's invasion of Ukraine and thought actually we cannot rely on neutrality to protect our sovereignty anymore. We have to start aligning with the West. There is a it's there's a, a key moment right now that with Moldova that it appears that the U.S. is is beginning to ignore, um, but we, to our peril. Um, we we need to be getting out there. We need to be doing more visits. We need to be thinking much more. Um, much with much more energy and vigor about things like security cooperation in Moldova, if we want to consolidate on this this deep and very understandable fear of Moscow aggression in the region. Um, Jim, uh, let me uh, bring you into this. Um, you know, we had Zelensky uh, made a very passionate plea uh, before uh, European leaders meeting in uh, Granada. They were talking about uh, enlargement as well as migration I issues. He made a case for joining the EU uh, again as part of his case to be part of NATO as well as uh, the European community. What impact is this having? So what is the detrimental American messaging in this, uh, which I think Kathleen addressed uh, wonderfully? But what is the next step here? Is it entry into the EU? You know, something, for example, Emmanuel Macron didn't want, right? He didn't want further enlargement, but now he has taken up this issue and a number of other leaders have that this may be, you know, an important, you know, even if it's a divided nation, uh, you know, there are some who say, hey, West Germany was able to come into NATO, even though it was uh, divided, it didn't become whole until 50 years after. Uh, that uh, decision uh, was made. Kind of give us give us your sense on sort of the, what the next step is. And then, Patrick, I'm going to come to you in a minute because I want to get your take on how the Chinese are portraying all of this insanity, uh, you know, the, the basically the undermining of an ally, which is something that they're actually over the long term anticipating and certainly hoping that happens, right, whether with Taiwan or, or Japan or anyone else. Uh, Jim, uh, you first, and then I want to get Patrick's take. Well, I think it's an important question as we're facing the Washington summit coming up this summer. Uh, and and I've come to the conclusion and I, I agree with uh, absolutely what Kathleen was saying. I mean, uh, this is this is this is a time when we have got to really kind of get off this weird fence that we seem to be sitting on in terms of supporting uh, Ukraine uh, with advanced weaponry and this type of thing. Uh, and really jump into this thing with both feet. And I know that's easy for me to say, not being in the government. Uh, but I but I think we're making a big mistake if we don't begin to change our trajectory in terms of assistance. And part of that is NATO membership for Ukraine, uh, NATO enlargement for Ukraine. Uh, the EU aside, the EU is much more difficult uh, to get into and uh, because of their, uh, you know, the, the various requirements that they have. But with NATO at the Washington summit this summer, at least we need to extend uh, an invitation to Ukraine um, a little more firmly than we've done in the past, particularly at Vilnius. I really believe Vilnius was a step back 
in terms of uh, signaling to Putin that the West and NATO particularly um, has is 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 going to have uh, Ukraine under its protection. Um, and I think what we've got to do at Washington, and I think we can, there's ways we can. We don't have to give them membership beginning right there in Washington, but we've got to push them uh, down the road a bit more than where they are now. Uh, and uh, and I defer to my colleagues at the State Department in terms of how this can be done uh, without giving them full membership. But we can't let Washington go by and have silence. And my fear is that that's where the administration is, that the administration uh, does not want um, uh, Ukraine and membership in NATO to be on the agenda uh, because they're, uh, they want this to be a great uh, historic summit. It's uh, the 75th, but it's also for Biden. This is in the middle of his presidential campaign. They want lots of photo ops and they want uh, they want a big victory. And having Ukraine uh, coming to NATO and all the issues that brings with it is not something they want to see debated and uh, the dirty laundry, you know, put out for the for the public to see. I think that's wrong. And I think we have got to we got to deal with this membership for uh, for Ukraine. And it's got to be at the Washington summit. Patrick, uh, how are the Chinese uh, spinning and posturing this? And what are the messages that this is sending uh, worldwide? Right. We say, uh, you know, it's our support for iron, uh, Ukraine is ironclad. Our support for Taiwan is ironclad. Our support for Philippines is ironclad. You know, Japan is the pillar of security in Asia. All of that seems pretty malleable when you have these kind of antics and it's like, well, Americans care about Americans and we're, we're not going to engage. And it looks like Donald Trump might be back, which means more antics. Yeah, there's cognitive dissonance here, uh, Vago, because our allies and partners hear us saying one thing out of the Biden administration, and yet they're witnessing a slow train wreck coming of greater American isolationism. And you see more and more signs from our allies and partners openly expressing concern about this. Um, and I can say more about that in a minute. But the Chinese, meanwhile, especially with the National Day holidays here with the 74th anniversary of the founding of the PRC, Xi Jinping has been reiterating some common themes about deep change. And deep change is um, code language for saying China's inexorable rise is here, its time is now, and America's decline is inexorable and uh, rapid. Um, and um, that is a fear. And he's also, though, talking about heightened risks. So at the same time, China's uh, defense modernization is maturing. Read Dave Finkelstein in the latest Foreign Affairs. Um, they are still resisting the kind of restraints and open channels of communication that might prevent an accident. Um, and and that's, that's worrisome as China steps up its sovereignty operations around Taiwan, South China Sea, and around Japan. Um, so great concern. Just on the isolationism, uh, one poll that got a lot of attention in Korea this week came out of the Chicago Council, because for the first time in many years, uh, a, a majority of the number of Republicans polled in this uh, poll said they would oppose the U.S. use of force to defend South Korea against North Korea. That's astonishing, uh, especially in light of what our South Korean ally under the UN administration has been doing to support U.S. policy. So the polarization in American politics, where whatever the Democrats say, Republicans have to oppose, unfortunately now seems to be spilling over into long-standing mainstream foreign policy. So how do you, uh, so just very briefly, I know that we could do an entire show on this and and I, I think we should, uh, but um, you know, what 
what do we, you know, Kathleen, maybe uh, you, you give us your sense uh, on this because I'm about to go to gym on, on, on Turkey. What is it that we need to be doing, right? I mean, uh, the criticism, and Michael has made this uh, in the past, right, that the president should do a better job, all of us have on this program, a better job of what's at stake in uh, Ukraine, right? It's not self-evident. Uh, often I find, um, you know, presidents have a tendency of saying the American people are smart. I'm not going to overdo it. I don't need to explain it too much. And you actually need to be explaining it all the time. You can't say, I'm so busy doing things, I can't, I, you know, I can't take the time to sell them. You need to be selling them all the time. I understand that this administration looks at the president going out and, and the danger is he'll make another gaffe uh, instead of, of doing it. But if, if you're not telling your story, nobody's telling your story or they're mistelling your story, uh, as, as folks have heard me say this before. What are the things that we need to be doing to try to change this vector? Because this ecosystem is moving to a more isolationist one. And given some financial trends, you know, when 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 you have a lot of debt and borrowing costs go up, you are going to have to make choices you would not otherwise like to make, you know, which is what Republicans also are capitalizing on. You can still prioritize, but, no, you know, the, the solution is more taxes, but nobody wants to raise taxes. More people want to cut taxes and believe in the fantasy that somehow that generates revenue. What are some of the things that we need to be doing to make the case that this internationalism is absolutely critical? One of the things that you just your question implicitly pointed out is we've got to make the case and we've got to make the case not just to ourselves in the beltway, but we need to actually get out of the beltway and, and talk to people, not just tell our message, not just get our narrative out, but actually talk to, you know, f you know, folks around the country and ask them, you know, what do you know about Ukraine? What do you know about the U.S. role in the world? Like, why, you know, why do you care? I, I was in. um Washington University of St. Louis uh, last week, um, and I did some remarks on um, the the view from Vilnius to Ukraine in one summer. And the point I made to them is that, you know, if, if you want jobs post-graduation, you, you need a stable international economy. The, the international economy is not stable if you have Russia starting to like take land grabs from its neighbors. We are already seeing so much disruption in the global economy because of the of Ukraine, uh, you know, the Black Sea Grain Initiative, all that sort of stuff. Um, this gets exponentially worse the more we allow these new imperial um, authoritarian states to take bites at their neighbors. Um, so there's real stakes. We just got to get out there and talk to the people in the places that they where they are and we've got to be consistent it's not just a one and done we got the talking points out and um therefore everybody should get it no it's you know with tiktok with twitter we have such short attention spans um you know it, we're, we're, our brains are absorbing so much information and so there's a reason for that but instead of saying that's that's a negative let's just recognize it as it is and just be consistent and talking about this all the time. And I'm just going to take a quick uh, word to remind our audience to check out our weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, the downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our air power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host with our very own JJ Gertler. Um, 
Patrick, uh, you wanted to weigh in uh, very briefly because, uh, and and Jim, you both can, but we've got to go into a little bit of a lightning round because there's a lot of Asia Pacific news to discuss. And I have to ask uh, about uh, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, uh, as well as uh, the US F-16 shooting down a Turkish drone. But go ahead, Patrick and Jim, if you want to weigh in at all, uh, as well on this broader point on how to make the case. Well, our allies and partners are trying to make the case, and we need to at least amplify what they're saying. Even Singapore Prime Minister Li Xianlong uh, at a big conference in Singapore this week talking about what has made America a friend of the region over the decades has been that it's uh, given the countries in the region space um, not to be held down or squatted upon. Um, and, you know, that that may sound understated, but the point is he was making this point about what China needs to do if it wants to be welcome in the region as well. Um, meanwhile, Taiwan talking about when they're not going to yield or provoke China. These these allies and partners are depending on the United States continuing to play its role in ups, in upholding the order. And if we if we falter, um, we will lose so much more. And, and Kathleen's absolutely right that you know we need to just be out in the world and listening to what others are saying. And finally, just thinking about what Vladimir Putin said in Sochi at a conference this week. He said, oh, America, they're always looking for enemies. They're always looking for enemies. This from the man who eliminates every one of his political enemies and then invades his neighbors. You know, if we're not paying attention to what these dictators are doing, we are going to rue the day when we uh, basically failed to lead uh, an opposing democratic world. Uh, indeed. Uh, Jim, uh, do you have anything you briefly want to ask or do we go to Turkey? Uh, just just briefly, and then I'll talk about Turkey as well. But but just briefly, uh, you know, as as it always is, following Patrick is very hard. I agree with everything he said and Kathleen as well. But I, I will make one more point, and that is at some point, uh, you know, we'll never be able to get out and cover the U.S. as much as we need to do. I mean, Kathleen's right. We need to do it. And we at, in, in various incarnations I'm in, we have been trying to do that with mixed results. So at the end of the day, we also are going to have to make the case in Washington, on the Hill, to staffers, just like CSIS did with Kathleen when they took their staffers out to the to Ukraine. But with staffers and members, we've got to make the case to them, too, over and over again. The administration has got to put effort towards that. I think the president's going to give a uh, address to the nation, I heard, uh, on this. I, you know, I hope that's effective. We'll, we'll see. But I think... I think at the end of the day, it's yes, it's getting to the people, but boy, we're going to really have to focus on that. The, the people on the Hill who are making the decisions, no matter what their constituents might be saying or thinking, these guys are going to do what they want to do. And we've got to hit them at their source. It's on the Hill and it's going to have to be a consistent and strong effort by the administration to do that using tools like CSIS did taking staffers over to Ukraine. Jim, can I just uh, jump in on that? Because I think yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, point. Kathleen. Um, we're not like people aren't visiting. We need to get people out to Ukraine. If if we've got these weird bureaucratic reasons that um the, the that staff Dells and others are not able to get on the ground and see what's happening and talk with Ukrainians, those are bureaucratic fixes that can be made. We should be making right. them quickly. Right, 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 right. And investment, right? Kathleen, when you had your hand up, you made an investment point and start to actually invest in a meaningful way to try to help the Ukrainians. Right, exactly. We are, we're, there's this huge amount of reconstruction that has to be done, um, but starting to get in on the contracts and um, that has to be done now. The Ukrainians aren't waiting till the war is ending. They're starting now. And if U.S. companies want to have a piece of that, 
um, pie, they need to start getting on the ground. There's all sorts of uh, accusations of corruption. Okay, got it. But there's American companies that are out there and have figured it out and are are going to be able to be a part of the post-war um, Ukrainian reconstruction effort. And if we don't do that, if we don't have our American companies going in there and doing that, it's going to be Chinese companies that are going to be able to get those those um, contracts. Uh, indeed. Uh, Patrick, uh, a lot of Indo-Pacific news. Uh, looks like President Biden is going to be meeting with Xi Jinping when they, uh, the uh, Asia-Pacific leaders gather uh, in uh, San Francisco. At the same time, the Chinese continue uh, to raise tensions with Taiwan. They continue to raise tensions with the Philippines. And we have uh, the Japanese opting uh, to, uh, you know, after meeting in the Pentagon, to accelerate their $1.4 billion acquisition of Tomahawk cruise missiles, a capability the United States has not made available to many other nations. The United Kingdom is another one, and and now uh, to uh, Japan. Walk us through sort of the regional news uh, and what is it? That, how is it that folks need to be thinking of all of these issues? Sure. In setting up the Xi Biden summit, and there's even a possibility there could be a meeting in Washington as well. That's not uh, a foregone conclusion. But um, Wang Yi is coming back to Washington this month. Um, uh, the vice uh, premier, uh, Heli Fang, who's leading the economy now uh, for China in many ways, is also set to come here. So they're in the final stages of negotiating a Xi-Biden summit, and a lot will depend on the reassurance that China feels that Washington is going to play ball. And toward that end, a bipartisan delegation um, led by Chuck Schumer and Senator Crapo from Idaho he of the uh, the Boise-based Micron uh, company, which has been sanctioned by China. You know, there are a lot of issues on the table as they go to China to try to say, look, we're going to be uh, tough, but, uh, uh, you know, fair, as long as you, China, play by the rules. And so a lot's going to be at stake here for this for this summit meeting that's coming up next month. Um, meanwhile, you're right, the tensions are uh, not subsiding, and, and the Defense Department is about to release their annual China uh, power report. They previewed some of that at CSIS this week, um, and uh, no surprises there that China's uh, continuing to modernize and beef up uh, and use coercion uh, in its uh, military instruments. Um, I think, uh, and we've seen that in the Philippines, in, uh, again, in the South China Sea, as the Philippines successfully uh, had to work around Chinese Coast Guard um, ships blocking them from resupplying the second Thomas Shoals. So once again, uh, more tensions in the South China Sea, and this is not going to stop. And around Taiwan, yes, the uh, encirclement uh, exercises uh, periodically that have really ramped up since the Nancy Pelosi visit of uh, last August, they're, they're going to continue, um, even as uh, we face this very tough election in Taiwan in January. All the candidates are out talking about different things, including the front runner, the DPP uh, sort of uh, leader and vice president, uh, William Lai Qingde. He's talking about Japan's role is going to be vital in any scenario because of the need for maintaining um, peace and sovereignty in the Indo-Pacific will hinge on, on Taiwan's future. And if it's annexed, Japan loses its security and others will lose their security in the region is the case he was making this week. Um, I think the um, issues on Japan's defense minister, um, defense minister uh, Kihara, uh, this was his first visit since being elevated to that post last month. He's a protege of the late uh, Shinzo Abe. Um, and he stepped up with uh, Secretary Austin by one year, the purchase of Tomahawk missiles so that they could have a deployed counter-strike capability in 2025 in Japan's uh, destroyers. 
And I think that's an important step for both deterrence and for Japan showing the United States they're serious about maintaining peace and security in the region. And indeed, um, Minister Kihara said, look, my job is two things. One, we have these three new strategic documents we laid out last year. Um, there, it's pie in the sky still. He says he's going to make sure that on his watch, Japan eats pie by the time he gets and leaves office. Um, and he's talking about the U.S.-Japan alliance is the key, and Japan is doing everything it can, including the Tomahawk Purchase, to make sure that that alliance gets stronger, working with other allies and many lateral arrangements, um, but also working on command and control. And he joked about uh, joining AUKUS as JAUKUS, um, and he talked about the growing importance of the Quad. So Japan is serious about making sure that it's doing its bit, but it really is counting on America being anchored in this region and concerned that we will be leaving. Um, I think the other issue of the region um, that we saw uh, was the, the Taiwan's National Day as well. I mean, they, they have their own right. National Day on October 10th, marking the 112th anniversary of the founding of the Republic of, of, of China. Um, and, and there I saw at Twin Oaks this week with Representative Mike McCall, AIT Rep Laura Rosenberger, and um, uh, B. Kim Shao, the de facto ambassador, talking about uh, the strength of this relationship. And they're really um, very much focused on the unity and how ironclad this is. And yet, as we've been talking about throughout this program, you know, the backstory is, will America continue to be that pillar of stability and strength for allies and partners in the region? And the answer is nobody knows because right now the United States is working in opposite directions. Um, we have I have uh, one question for the, each of the three of you on the international uh, team, uh, but we've only got a little more than five minutes in order to do it. So we really are lightning round. Um, Patrick, um, Canada, uh, India relations uh, are probably at an all time low. Uh, credible intelligence of India's involvement in the political execution of a Canadian national on Canadian soil. Uh, soil Modi is cracking down on independent journalists, on the judiciary. Uh, right, particularly virulent brand of Hindu nationalism. Uh, and yet all of the nations that would normally come to Canada's aid are not, in part because India is a gigantic market and will punish you if you poke your head up, uh, or B, because like Washington, we need an ally against China and so we're not speaking out. What are the stakes of not speaking out against India when it behaves just like Russia does on the international stage? Well, we succumb to the image that we are hypocritical um, and that we only speak out when it serves our interests. But um, that is a reality that you have to have a, a trade-off between protecting your strategic interests, which are considerable with China in dealing with a rising chi China. And, and we have to have a, a relationship with India to deal with that, to be a counterbalance. Um, and we can't hold that strategic calculus to every human rights abuse is as egregious as it might be um, if this uh, allegation is true, that the Indian uh, covert operation took out, uh, you know, a, a Khalistani activist, a Canadian, uh, on Canadian soil, because that's an unacceptable red line, as Jake Sullivan's talked about. And yet, um, that's a red line that has to be discussed in private, because overall, the foreign policy relations with India are too important to be held to any single human rights abuse, at least as long as it's not repeated, <laughs> um, right. you know. So, and I think Canada even understands they need to contain this uh, damage because they also have tremendously important ties with India. But I think the big line here is, uh, continues to be whether 
India feels that it is now uh, a top tier power that can act with impunity anywhere? And the answer is no, it can't. It, it must be held accountable, even if in private, for this kind of egregious action, if indeed it is complicit. Uh, Jim, uh, very uh, quickly, Emmanuel Macron criticized Azerbaijan uh, in uh, the wake of the ethnic cleansing of Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, you know, said it clearly out of international uh, norms is Azerbaijan's behavior, but it's not the right time for sanction, sanctions, which is exactly the message Baku was expecting. Everyone needs Azeri energy, uh, so Aliyev is unlikely to be daunted if he decides to move next on Armenia, which is what the expectation is this time also with uh, Turkish and and Russian approval. Is this on a particularly dangerous track when something this significant happens and nobody says anything about it and a lot of false equivalencies? So wait a minute. So the ethnic uh, cleansing issues that are, for example, in, in Ukraine or Xinjiang or elsewhere matter, but here it happens to a tiny nation that's surrounded by a bunch of great powers uh, and you just basically ignore it, which is pretty much, I think, where we are now. Well, you throw uh, energy requirements into that as well, uh, particularly for Europe in terms of, of trying to break off from uh, Russian energy, gas, you know. So Azerbaijan has, that's where it is. Uh, and so I think uh, the EU uh, was just over there um, uh, meeting with the Azeris last year and, and toasting each other and uh, saying how strong a partnership and relationship they have and all the various plans for pipelines and this and that. So, uh, you know, I, I think there is ethnic cleansing going on, at least the, it seems to meet the definition. But but I don't see the outrage uh, like you point out. And I sometimes I almost think it's a bandwidth issue. There is so much instability globally right now that um, just in Europe, there's the Balkans, uh, what's happening there in Kosovo. Then you've got this and in, uh, in Central uh, Asia. I mean, there is so much going on that is hard to be outraged. Uh, when you only have eight hours of the day. And so, so yeah, I think, I think this is a dangerous uh, time, a dangerous tre uh, trend line down there. I don't know where the Azeris will stop. I don't know if they will continue, whether they're backed by Russia and Turkey or not. Uh, but it's certainly something I know that the State Department has sent some folks there. Uh, Yuri Kim went there. Uh, so, you know, we'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens. But there's not a lot of leverage there anymore. Uh, and I and I think we're so bogged down with other problems that we're not we can't give that enough U.S. attention. It's going to have to be others to do that, whether it's France or the U.N. But right now, I think uh, Azerbaijan's on a roll and we'll see where they stop. Kathleen, uh, a uh, Iranian uh, women's rights uh, activist, Nargis Mohammadi, uh, was uh, the winner of uh, the 2023 Nobel Prize, uh, Peace Prize, uh, certainly one of the world's most important awards. And this comes on the one year anniversary, roughly, of uh, Masa Amini's uh, brutal killing uh, at the hands of Iran's religious police. Uh, and just a week after uh, the brutal beating uh, of a 15-year-old uh, over uh, the question of whether she was wearing a chador or not wearing her headscarf properly or what have you, again, by the religious police on a train. Uh, they say, I think she slipped and fell or something like that, uh, whereas the video is incontrovertible. Uh, what's the importance of this uh, award? Uh, and when is the world going to take, you know, it's still 2023, man, and we're still not taking women's issues as seriously as we need to be. Um, very much agree with that that point, uh, that latter point that um, we tend to think about um, 
women's rights as a domestic human rights or you know a cultural relativistic perspective and um now these these women in iran are fighting for their freedoms the 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 iranian regime is one that is hostile to the united states and its allies in in so many ways and uh women are standing up and and holding their ground but you know the the regime is also doubling down and beating um children um it's 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 good that the nobel prize was awarded to her in part because the the international community at least in the minds of a number of these Iranian activists, the international community is beginning to get a little bit of fatigue with the problem. Like, um, you know, the the uh, Iranian, you know, in sp the sports diplomacy world, Iranian teams are being invited back into uh, those fora. They're being normalized in the view of some of these activists. And that is unacceptable given that women are being women one uh, one activist said to me yesterday calls it gender apartheid are we, do, are we really okay with living in a world where gender apartheid is is happening and that we're not using all the tools at our disposal to um to to roll back a gender apartheid uh policy in an ad within a country that is so obviously adversarial to our own interests um the international community can probably do a bit more to support these women and and hopefully in the process make uh, progress towards advancing our own aims vis-a-vis -vis the, uh, the Iranian regime as well. But before we go, Jim, you get uh, 30 seconds. Uh, extraordinary USF-16 jet appears to have shot down a Turkish drone that was overflying Americans, uh, American forces in uh, Syria. How serious an issue is this and sort of what's next? Because we've been looking at, uh, you know, Erdogan post-election. He's with the alliance. We're all getting back to normal. Kumbaya. And that's not exactly true. That was just good rhetoric from Ankara. Well, I, I think... Um... We do need good rhetoric like that, at least to keep an optimistic point of view about the relations between the U.S. and Turkey. I think what happened with the drone is the kind of thing you see in a contested environment like uh, in the air over Syria. We have deconfliction with Russia. We got deconfliction with the Turks as well because these kinds of things happen. That drone was uh, warned off a number of times by our guys on the ground. Phone calls were made. Uh, to the command posts by uh, U.S. forces to, to warn off the uh, uh, the drone. The drone was in a heading right towards our forces, and so the F-16 was told to shoot it down, and so and so it did. And I think there was there was a phone call between the two uh, between the SecDef and the uh, the Turkish mod where they the U.S. apologized, and there was an understanding, and the, and there was some good rhetoric that came out of that, but. But those kinds of things, whether it happens over Syria or it happens uh, in Ukraine, uh, that's the kind of thing that can spark a, a spiral uh, uh, where there is a response that's uh, kinetic and then you're in a, in a bad place. That doesn't happen with Turkey. It could happen in Ukraine with, with a spillover there into an allied country like Poland or Romania. But uh, in, in terms of the U.S. and Turkey, uh, it didn't happen. But it certainly didn't help the perception of one another in terms of uh, among the people, because a lot of times this gets down among the Turkish people and they hear about this and they look on the U.S. Uh, one more reason not to like the U.S. So um, certainly at the uh, grassroots, this is not something that helps in the relationship. Uh, but that shows you why you have deconfliction centers and uh, why the Turks didn't respond. I think they're going to have to do an after action report on that.
to find out why the, the, the Turks didn't turn back when they were given warnings by the U.S. side. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Uh, really appreciate it. Kathleen, welcome back. It was a pleasure uh, having you on the program and to our audience. Thanks so very much for uh, being so generous with your time and a special thanks uh, to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program uh, possible each week. Hope everybody has uh, a great day, a great weekend, and tune back in on Sunday for our Washington Roundtable. Uh, in the meantime, thanks very much, and we'll see you again soon.